Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work being done by folks using the historical collections held in the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joins me today. James Leach is a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University. James, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. You're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes. What is it you're researching and writing about? Mm. I am working on my uh, dissertation in the history department, um, tentatively titled I think I must have gone through a few different titles at this point, um, but tentatively titled Training the Brain in 20th Century America. It's a history of social science. It's a history focused on social science research on uh, aging and elderly people's um, cognitive decline, if cognitive decline occurs, and its application in uh, corporate retirement practice and age-based anti-discrimination law. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, what time period are you looking at? Um, do you also have, perhaps have a spatial setting? Yes, um, I'm focused on the United States uh, after World War II. This, um, this research is relevant to a lot of different countries and it, and it does cross national borders, but the United States is really um, unique among wealthy countries in a lot of ways in that it's almost entirely banned uh, mandatory retirement as a practice, especially after um, 1986, when the Age Discrimination and Employment Act was amended to make mandatory retirement illegal, except in a few very specific cases. So it's really stretching from um, the end of World War II when the issue of uh, America's aging population and uh, aging workforce really becomes a national issue up until this point in the 80s when it's decided that forcing people to retire when they reach 65 is uh, a form of discrimination and, and should be illegal in most cases. Well, what are some of your sources to tell this story? Mm. Um, a lot of my sources are um, from the social sciences. So I'm, in some ways I'm lucky that I can um, rely on published sources on the scientific studies that uh, sociologists and especially psychologists have um, performed on elderly people. I'm really interested in things like their choice of um, how to measure decline. So in psychologist's case, um, typically this is done with intelligence tests and they might choose different sorts of tests um, to, to test different parts of mind or different conceptions of what it means to to decline over time. Um, and I'm lucky that a lot of that those sources are publicly available. Um, I did do some research at the Hagley Center this past spring with an exploratory grant. Mm -hmm. I got a chance to um, look through, because the focus is really on the, the social science, but I'm interested in how it's applied. So I got a chance to um, look through the Seagram Company's records um, just to get a sense of what a large corporation in the middle of the 20th century, um, what their retirement practices are. Do they have mandatory retirement? Do they rely on outside uh, expert knowledge to make these decisions on who should be retired? 
uh, those sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. Well, and what did retirement look like uh, within Seagram's in this mid 20th century period you're looking at? Mm -hmm. So um, what you often hear um, when you're reading about this period is this was the era of mandatory retirement when it was very common in major corporations to force people to retire uh, once they reached 65. And that was basically the case at Seagram's, but it was a little bit more complicated. Um, retirement practices were somewhat flexible and, and there were different standards for different kinds of employees. Um, so their major um, reorganization was in 1957, I believe, when they introduced a new pension system and, and took that chance to reorganize the, the retirement practice. Um, for executives in the company, um, there was mandatory retirement at 65. For other employees, the, the language that they use is, is quite interesting. There's They talk about um, employees are expected to retire at 65, or, or we hope that employees will retire at 65, but, but in reality, it was flexible. Um, employees could with the permission of their supervisor, choose to work later than that. They could choose to retire earlier. Um, and these all had uh, uh, had implications for their pensions uh, after retirement, of course. Um, and the other um, wrench that gets thrown into the system, I guess you could say, is um, married women um, were coming out of World War II, were, were allowed to work on the same um, retirement schedule as men. Um, but the, the practice was expected that uh, married women, unless they had a husband in the army, um, shouldn't be working. Uh, so they made their decision to return to the pre-war practice of um, essentially firing uh, their married women employers employees. So it's a very disparate, heterogeneous system of retirement. Mm -hmm. What was the company's stake in forcing retirement at 65? Was it directly based on the assumption that cognitive decline follows thereafter? Or um, was uh, was there another, perhaps a pecuniary uh, reasoning behind that decision or that practice? Yeah, it's a, I find it's a difficult question to answer because, um, because the sources don't always uh, uh, say what we want them to say and and as you said there's the the pecuniary incentive and people are, are less likely to to be upfront about that sort of thing um i will say that there is less uh focus on cognitive decline than um i'll, I'll say the in, in my research, starting from the social scientists, we find that these people prepare a lot of tools for um, for use for employers saying, you know, here are these ways that you can that you can tell whether your older employees are, are still fit to work here, are the sorts of tests that you can use here, are the sorts of um, maybe you could call them algorithms for determining based on what a person's physical and, and mental health is at this age. This is probably how long they'll be able to continue to work. Hmm. And a company like Seagram's, I find, didn't really use these tools. I think um, when they talk about um, 
retiring an employee uh, because of their failing health, whether that's um, psychological or physical, um, the that decision is usually made um, by a physician, um, which is a sort of private one-on-one -on -one evaluation that's that's hard to get at um, in the historical sources. But to your main question, um, I do suspect that the uh, pecuniary element of it did play a large role, that um, this was as much about um, keeping the pension system in order, making sure that um, they wanted to continue to hire young people, especially for these uh, executive positions, these positions where there was that hard mandatory retirement limit. Um, they wanted to make their company attractive to college graduates, um, young engineers, and that meant um, sort of clearing out the older um, executive class and, and making room for new hires. Mm -hmm. What were some of these sociological tools being developed for um, what it really sounds like is uh, analyzing and even grading and categorizing human capital, as it were, the labor pool within a company. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, the historical basis for a lot of these tools is the um, explosion of personnel research and, and personnel departments in the, the early part of the 20th century. And this I can say my background uh, approaching this topic is largely in the history of science and, and the history of education. So I'm I'm very interested in intelligence tests and psychometrics, which um, first become these popular tools in the army in World War One, and then in public schools, and then um, in businesses for hiring. But but all these settings where people want to sort and evaluate young people. Um, and then the question becomes, as uh, the workforce gets older, as these questions of retirement and retirement benefits and social security and who should be given the, how these um, financial resources should be distributed, there's a question of uh, whether these tools initially developed for young people can be applied to older people. And people have to ask all these questions about you know, how do these tests need to change as, as we move from young people to old people where tests for young people are, are usually timed and, and you have to complete the sets in a set amount of time, but is that fair to older people uh, who might be just as skilled as young people, but might need a bit more time to come to the right answer? Hmm. It seems to me the big historical context for this is in this mid 20th century moment where all of a sudden retirement benefits and social security, as you mentioned, are an expectation for a large proportion of the workforce for the first time um, in a really historically novel way. Um, could you perhaps unpack that a little bit about um, companies having to deal with retirement because that is now the expectation of society that workers will be able to retire with some financial security? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so going back to the early history of social security, one of the social scientists who, who helped promote uh, the social security act in 1935, one of these, um, I believe he was trained as an economist, um, but Abraham Epstein hmm. did um, 
research on on the elderly and um, the elderly in the workforce during the 1920s and 1930s when sort of the the accepted uh framing of this as a social problem was uh poverty among the elderly and his his framing was that um as the industrial revolution um accelerated and and employment became much more mechanized and corporatized um this older world where older people could continue and work as long as they were able and maybe they weren't able to contribute as much as young people but that's all right they can still contribute some um started to fall apart because um if if elder people aren't able to keep up with this new industrial pace then then there's just no place for them in work yeah. and so his solution to that is um we need to now that older people are are no longer able to work in this economy we have a responsibility to provide for them and and that's sort of the social science uh, justification for um social security and from the uh, from the employer's perspective there's this assumption that older workers are not as valuable as younger workers um maybe they they don't work as hard or in the same way or maybe it takes more time to teach them new skills and so the assumption is um that social security which seems to be a you know an imposition on employers a drain now they're required to um well I'm, I'm i'm saying social security but also these pension systems retirement um providing for for employer for employees after they're after they've left the workforce um the employers start to see maybe this can be uh helpful in some ways by um by clearing out by uh, clearing out these older employees making room for for younger hires um providing those younger hires incentive to stay at the same company for a long period of time because they know there will be this ladder of uh of promotion mm -hmm. um especially in the these sort of highly sought after executive positions um which are of course uh restricted mostly to men and to white men um but the system of mandatory retirement sort of um it is applied much much broader than that hmm. that's very interesting i'm wondering whether your study has implications for the present day where we have uh, a aging population overall and as well as older folks staying in the workforce much longer um the context of which of course being the erosion of some of these retirement benefits both public and private systems um so hmm. does your study perhaps speak to the present moment in some way I think it does. I think um, what we've seen uh, in France since the beginning of this year really points to um, some of the national differences in, in how um, different countries handle retirement and mandatory retirement. I think I think it'd be too much of a cop-out to say, um, well, certainly this is going to be applicable to the present, but I'll, I'll see how applicable it is when I get to the end. Um, that That's my instinct to say that. Um, I think that, um, th that there's this uh, narrative that seemed to hold true um, for a long time that, that someone like Abraham Epstein was promoting that um, 
poverty among the elderly was a problem at one point, um, but now we've moved past that. Now we're living in the mid 20th century, uh, this time of affluence when um, pensions and social security and Medicare are able to provide for the elderly. Um, and, and, and lift them out of poverty. But I think that um, that poverty among the elderly, or if not even poverty, then, then uh, financial hardship among the elderly uh, does have historical roots, uh, certainly before Social Security, I think um, even during the Social Security era. And so I do think that there is a lot of um, context for for an aging workforce that's uh, that's still relevant today. Well, James, thanks for taking the time to share your work with me. It's really interesting. Thank you. It's been uh, great to talk about it. Oh, you're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.